Amen. safe. As long as you're running, there's always the possibility they can find you somehow, some way. You don't rest even when it's time to sleep. They're here. United States, present day. Virtually everything we do in our daily lives leaves a digital trail. Every click of an email, social media, or bank account reveals who we know, what we're doing, where we are. For law enforcement, these everyday routines can help them stay one step ahead of the criminals. Now, 18 ordinary U.S. citizens are going on the run as fugitives. Go, 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 go. Challenged to disappear in one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. Get down. Just get down. I want to be able to say I got away from the best of the best. And if they can evade capture for 28 days, let's go, let's go, let's go. they will receive $250,000. If I should win the money, I get chills even thinking about what this could do for myself and my daughter. Tracking them down are 32 of the top investigators in the world. My team is exceptional. They all bring unique talents, resources, and experiences from the Navy SEALs, the CIA, the U.S. Marshal Service. The hunters will use real-world techniques to track them down. Exactly. Oh, the they can run, but they can't hide. There's a lot of satisfaction that comes with apprehending a fugitive. You think about what their next move is going to be, and we know more about them than they do. It works. The password, we can now log in. Uncovering every digital footprint, exploiting every weakness. Where will they hide? Who will they trust? As a fugitive, your whole life will be analyzed. I want these folks caught. Your time on the run is over. Twenty-eight days. Eighteen fugitives. If you had to disappear, could you? Anybody called The Hunted? No? It was on this, um, this winter and this spring, and my, our daughter Leah kind of got us into it, and by the end of it, we were all watching it. Um, my wife and I were plotting where we would hide for 28 days, and uh, some of your houses I was going to stay at in the basement for a little bit, and it was a lot of fun. $250,000 at the end of it wasn't a bad, uh, wasn't a bad deal anyways, but uh, how many, anybody be a part of that? 28 days hiding? They had, yeah, a few of you, yeah? I thought it'd be a lot of fun. I'd like to see, after 28 days of the hunt, it's all pretend, right? It's just a big game of hide and seek. But like real fugitives, like their life is on the line. Once they get caught, I mean, they're done. We've been talking about in this Divine Conspiracy um, series about uh, three kings, King Saul, King David, and uh, soon we'll be talking about King Solomon. And last week, Ryan talked about kind of the height this, this far of uh, David's life. He takes a stone and he throws it at, you guys remember who? Goliath. Thank you, kid. Throws it at Goliath, knocks him down. He saves the nation of Israel. I mean, if he wouldn't have knocked Goliath down, Israel would have been part of the Philistines. I mean, they would have kind of been grafted in. But there in that moment, David saves the Israelites. And this should have been some of the greatest time in the Israelites' history. I mean, they should have been rejoicing and glad. But instead, we read in 1 Samuel, just one chapter later, from what you guys looked at last week, we read this in 1 Samuel 18:6. And when the men were returning home, after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul, with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. Anybody know what a lute is? I'm looking at music as lute, no? Um, they came out with them anyways. 
As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from this day forward, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I mean, this should have been the height of David's popularity, but they didn't even get back into town when Saul became jealous. Actually, his jealousy turned to anger. His anger turned to rage. And from this day forward, Saul decided David's got to go. He first tries to put him at the head of the fighting men and says, surely he'll die. Does that sound familiar, what David does later on to Uriah? Yeah. And he doesn't die. He's victorious every single time. Finally, in a fit of rage, he takes a spear and tries to pin David to the wall, and David says, I'm out of here. I'm going on the run, not for $250,000, but for my life. He goes to the deserts. He goes to the hills, anywhere King Saul isn't. And King Saul comes out after him with a vengeance, comes out with 3,000 of his fighting men trying to kill David. And that's kind of where our story picks up today. If you have a Bible under your seat in the Story of God Bibles, turn to page 207 or 1 Samuel 26. And let's, let's read. Let's start at uh, verse 2. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph, and with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road in the hill of Hikalah, facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. And when he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. And then David sent out, set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army and camped around him. You get the picture here? David is the hunted, but Saul comes looking for David, and David says, ah, this is my moment. I see where Saul is encamped on a hill. And this would have been a normal military position for King Saul. Military position would have been up on a hill, and historians tell us this is how the camp was kind of set up. It was set up in a circular kind of motion, and you'd have like the wagons, and you'd have the donkeys on the outside, and then you'd have least important man to most important man going in, surrounding King Saul and Abner. Picture a, a quiet water, and you're taking a rock, and you're throwing it in. You throw it in, and it creates ripples. That would have been how this camp of Saul's was set up. With King Saul and the, the commander of the army was looking for David, in the middle. Let's continue reading in verse 6. David then asked Amalek, the Hittite, and Abishah, son of Zerai, Joab's brother, who will go down to the camp with me to Saul? So David's like, I'm tired of going on the run. I'm tired of hiding in the hills. I'm tired of being in the desert. There's King Saul. I'm going to go on the attack. And so he turns to two of his buddies. He's like, Who's going to go with me? Could you imagine being one of those guys saying, there's 3,000 of them, Um, you go. But one of them speaks up. Abishah says, I love what he says, he's like, yeah, I'll go. Who's going to go with me? Yeah, 
I'll go. For some reason, it reminded me of Jesus walking along the water, and he reaches his hand. I picture him reaching his hand out to the disciples, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they say, yeah. We don't know the mission you're going on. We don't know all that you're going to do, but Jesus will go with you. Abishaw's like, this is crazy. I mean, this is a suicide mission. Two against 3,000, their best men. I don't know what this mission is going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to go. I love this invitation that David gives Abishaw and Amalek. Come with me and be a part of this. I love even more Abishaw's response. Yes. For those of you who have been part of Kettlebrook for any length of time, you've heard stories about people going all the way across the ocean and those sitting right next to you who have seemed to engage in what was impossible missions for God. I mean, they're reaching their workplaces. They're in Chad, Africa. They're, they're dealing with all kinds of people. And they said, you know what? We want to go out. We're on this mission because we want to see God move and we want to see God work in the lives of people. And I've got to meet these people. In and of themselves, they're not impressive people. But what makes them impressive is that they said yes to a really impressive God. While most congregations see living like this as abnormal, Kettlebrook is trying to show people that this is actually a normal way that we should live out our faith and how we should live out following God. You see, God has called us to not just to merely sit in a chair on a Sunday morning, though that's great, not merely listen to Caleb or be an overall good person, but he's called us to step out in faith in impossible ways so that we can be changed by God and God can use us to show his love and his grace and his mercy to the people around us. And like David invited Abishai to be part of his mission, God is inviting us to move past our comfort, move past our life that revolves completely around us to make a difference in our workplaces, to make a difference in our neighborhoods, to make a difference on our sports teams for his glory and his honor. So when people think of the people of Kettlebrook, they're not surprised by a news story that's, that shows the people of Kettlebrook reaching the outcast with the love of Jesus. And when people think about the people of Kettlebrook, they're not surprised when we care for the unlovely or the least of these. They're not surprised to see us hanging out with sinners. Not that we're changed by those people, but we're bringing the love of Jesus to them. I'll spare you all the details, but nine years ago, my family got invited to, be, to the city of Hartford to be a part of God's mission there. And maybe you don't know this, but the city of Hartford is underrepresented when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of churches there. There's not a lot of places that are showing and telling about the grace and love of Jesus. I'll never forget sitting down with a pastor nine years ago. We were sitting at the mine shaft. You go there for pizza. Can I, can I be done with this? this is, can I be done with this? Is that all right?
God is not moving here in the city of Hartford. And I think he said it to discourage me, to say, don't bother coming. Don't waste your time, Dave. But it actually encouraged me. The impossible is not my mission. It's not my mission to change people's hearts. My mission is to be a part of an impossible mission with God. And for nine years, we've stepped into this mission, and we've seen small glimpses of God moving, small glimpses of people's lives being changed. If we're going to be followers of God here in Kettlebrook, it's got to be more than the pastors stepping out to impossible missions with God, stepping out in faith. It's going to, be more, it's going to take more than the elders of the church saying, we want Jesus to affect all of our lives, and we're going to step out to impossible ways because we know we have an impressive God. It's going to take people like you. It's going to take people like me to join God in his mission wherever we're at. Average people joining an impressive God on impossible missions that only he can do something about. So I have a question for you today. Is God calling you to a mission? Have you ever thought that, that God is calling you to be a part of his mission? What's keeping you from saying yes? Who are some people that you could join with to be a part of what God is doing in your neighborhoods, what God is doing in your workplaces, what God is doing in your sports teams, and, and so on and so forth? Let's keep reading. First Samuel 7. So David and Abishah went out to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp, and with his spear stuck in the ground near his head, Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishah said to David, Today God has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't, I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishah, Don't destroy him. Who can lay on the hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will, be, and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. And you picture the scene. Abishah and David, they pick their way through the donkeys and the wagons. They move and are stepping over bodies of the 3,000 people that are sleeping. Oh, one's rolling over. We're busted. Let's keep on going. You hear the snoring, and finally they move through this circle, and they see there King Saul's spear. And Abishal walks up to King Saul, sleeping, doesn't even know, and he's like, this is it. David, surely God has given him into our hands. Basically he's saying, I mean, God's done a miracle here. Two against 3,000. We made it all the way through. I mean, this is surely has to be from God. Later you'll read that it actually was. I mean, they could have had a circus go through that. God put all the people to sleep, and that's what allowed them to get through. At face value, it's hard to argue with Abishah's reasoning. Striking Saul at this moment would have stopped years of running and hiding. Did you know that they, they estimate that David ran from Saul for 15 years? 15 years. That strike, picking up that spear 
in that moment would have ended all of that. No more running. No more burning in the desert by day. No more freezing in the cold at night. No more climbing on the rocks like goats. No more always looking behind you wondering, is this the day that Saul's going to come for us and kill us? No more trying to stay one step ahead. If he picks up that spear, that spear, and he kills Saul, it's all gone. We don't know exactly how far into this journey it was, but we can't blame Abishaw if he'd have done it. With this decision, David could have finally taken his rightful spot as king. I mean, that's what God wanted, right? He wanted David to be, David to be king. That's what Samuel said when he anointed him. This is what God wanted, right? So often, taking things in our own hands makes so much sense to us. It seems so logical. We get an immediate result that we're looking for. But in the end, it really re- reveals our unbelief in our God who put us in the situation that we are in to begin with. Jim Simbola, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, said this. That's how human nature works, doesn't it? We're all impatient by nature. And the worst mistakes happen when we can't wait for God's timing. Just because we don't see God doing anything, we think that God isn't doing anything. He said at the end of that again. Just because we don't see God doing anything doesn't mean God isn't doing anything. My wife and I moved to Hartford nine years ago, and there's been many, many times where I've sat and I've cried out and said, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Like your timing isn't quite right, and if I was to confess to you and if you were to talk to my wife and friends, there is many times where I've taken things and matters into my own hands. There's many times when I felt like God wasn't doing enough. There's many times when I thought God wasn't working. There's many times when I thought God was working differently, and I think he, sh- he shouldn't have been working differently. And there's a lot of times when God wasn't working on my timetable. And so I picked up that spear and was ready to thrust it, take things into my own hands. As I read this passage now, I can wonder, I wonder if God was yelling like David, no, be patient. I've got a plan. No, God doesn't need your help in this situation. He'll work it out. No, my timing is different. Wait. Will you stop trying to be God, Dave, and just trust me? You see, when we step out in faith, a mission for God, instead of walking alongside of God, we often move in front of God and we try and take matters into our own hands. Some of you may be there today. You said, Dave, I don't know. I I haven't really stepped out in mission for God that much. Some of you have. You're single and uh, you're trying to live for God and you want a spouse. And you've trusted God, and you've trusted God long enough. 
and he's not working. He's not going to work. And so you may sit here today ready to take things into your own hands when it comes to that relationship. Maybe you're in a marriage, and as you have sit here, sit here today, you have prayed for your spouse for years and years and years that they've come to faith, that they be the man or woman, godly man or woman that God has desired. And as you look at them today, maybe on the car ride today, you, say, you see no movement. You see God doing nothing. And you say, time to take matters in my own hands. I've got to get out of this relationship. I've got to find someone who loves me and who cares about me. Maybe you've been in a trustworthy employee at work, always doing what God wants, but always being passed over for that promotion time after time, only to see people unqualified take, their, take the job that you should have had. And you're like, God, what are you doing? I'm not moving up the corporate ladder the way I thought you wanted me to. So even today, maybe you're contemplating some unscrupulous behavior. Take matters in your own hands because God isn't doing enough. I know for me, it's friends and family that I've prayed for weeks. It's neighbors that I've prayed for for years that I've loved and cared about and I don't see God changing their hearts and I wonder if I'm honest if he ever will God are you present God are you here and so I'm ready to pick up the sword and do it on my own can I give you a word of encouragement today God hasn't forgotten you you don't have to move ahead of God He's working even though you can't see it. One of my favorite verses is John 5, 17, and this is Jesus. He says this, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus was referring to the Pharisees when he was healing people on the Sabbath day. And he's like, it doesn't matter what day. I heal people. My father, he's always moving. He's always working. Even if you can't see it, even if I don't heal anybody today on, on Sunday, my father's still healing people. It's still happening. And I wonder in our lives if God is doing the same. I wonder if he's moving even though we can't see it. And he's working our behalf. And I wonder if instead of picking up that spear, we can rest. Instead of trying to figure it out, the answer, and do it on our own, we can just rest that he's, he's doing something. Verse 11 is probably one of my favorite verses in this whole story. David says this, But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. Abishah Don't move ahead of God. Trust him. It's almost like he throws up his hands and says, God is going to move some way. God is going to work some way. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know that he is moving. I know that he's working, so I don't have to. So I don't have to. So like like 
God rested on the seventh day after creation, we can rest in what Jesus did on the cross. Your work is sufficient. Like Jesus sat in the grave for three days, and his disciples were probably wondering, what are you doing? Like if you're going to resurrect, like this would be the time to do it. Are you powerful enough to do it? Are you going to resurrect from the dead? And he just waited. He was working. He was moving in his timetable. Just rest. I thought in my own heart, why is it so difficult to rest? Soul rest, a friend of mine and I call it. Why is it so difficult for our souls to rest in what God is doing? Oh, that you, we would all have the mindset of David who writes in Psalms 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry for help and he set my feet upon a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. God wants us to rest. Maybe today God has invited you on a mission and you're debating it. Should I be involved with this or that? And maybe, maybe you're wondering if, if you should be invited, if you should be, say yes to this mission. Maybe today you've been on mission for God for some time and you're tempted to run ahead. Maybe today you need to throw your hands up and say, God, I surrender. I rest in what you're doing. There's a couple verse there's a couple questions as the music team comes forward that are going to be on the screen and they're just going to give you about 2 minutes to contemplate these and we pr- I pray that the Holy Spirit kind of works through your heart in these um, and uh, moves. Thanks.